Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I am Dustin Payne, and uh, it's good to be here with you. It's an honor. Uh, as Pastor Mark mentioned, we've been incubating here in Ridgefield uh, with this congregation for the past year, my wife Dawn and I, Lyra, Aaron, and Sinai as well. So it's uh, been a good season with you. Um, we are in Portland, and um, I think you'll find the message this morning different and interesting and I hope that you would find out a little bit more about the city right down the street, um, <clears throat> because it really is just right down the street. As Pastor Mark mentioned, maybe some of you have even come from Portland, and um, maybe this is the Lord's awakening for you to come back with me, <laughs> or not. <laughs> so uh, I am thankful, too, for uh, Pastor Mark and Go Church Ridgefield, for Christy and everyone here who's supported us, by the way. Uh, it means, I don't, you know, it means a lot to move 2,000 miles from your home and to be received by a home. And, uh, you know, we left our family and our friends and the church we planted in Houston, and it was good to come into uh, a small group with uh, Chad and Jen Reed and Roland and Chelsea Kinsey and the Spadings and the Duckets and just all the people that we've managed to build relationships with and come in in the morning and get to know you, and it's been very wonderful. Uh, I'm really not going to talk much about what we um, are doing right now in Portland. I'll just give you a list real quick. Uh, we have a small group that's meeting in Selwood, our neighborhood we live in, in southeast Portland. Um, maybe the safest part of Portland is how I feel about it, so if you do want to come with us, Selwood's a good place to live. Um, we have a men's breakfast that's attended uh, monthly, and we've had a good time. Some of you, uh, Keith and uh, others, have come and been part of that, and it's been really good. The kind of person that comes to our men's breakfast, uh, my neighbor Mike, he is um, the uh, son of a Holocaust survivor. His family's Jewish, and so when I invited him to come to our men's breakfast, I said, you know, we're reading about your family this week, um, and I just, it, I, I couldn't, it just blows my mind sometimes when you open scripture and you realize it's not that far away. You're reading the story of Joseph and you realize you're sitting at the table having breakfast with his great descendant. Um, it is just amazing how scripture comes to life sometimes. Um, I do want to give you a, a bit of a roadmap of where we're going this morning because what I want to answer is a question for you and for me and it's a question for the city and the people of Portland and that is where does healing uh, from where does healing come and our roadmap this morning is going to be burning serpents misplaced hope and late night musings with Jesus um, Chad and our go group said these would also be great band names <laughs> if you'd like to take one they're free for you so we're gonna go in that way burning serpents misplaced hope and late night musings. Um, but before we get to that, about the serpents in the wilderness and this sort of um, uh, powerful story, I want to share with you a surprising observation of one year in Portland. Um, I've been there for a year with my family now. My kids go to the public school. We have uh, neighbors. We've been there. We've incubated. And this may surprise you. Maybe it doesn't, but it surprised me um, there are a lot of Christians in Portland. There are a lot of Christians who used to be part of a church in Portland. There's a lot of people who know the name of Jesus and have been part of congregations, many of whom might have been baptized or made a decision to trust Jesus with their life in Portland, Oregon. So 
why then is this like the most dastardly place in America? Why then do people often paint Portland as the place you don't want to go? Uh, when we first got there, uh, I sold my washer and dryer to a couple who lived right outside the city. They asked, where did I come from? I said, I was from Texas. And they said, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> and I was like, man, that's the, yeah, it's good to be here too. <laughs> but I can tell you that what you might be actually surprised about is that um, all of our network partners often talk about Portland, uh, and we, we partner with various groups, but uh, often you might hear that, well, you know, Portland's pre-Christian. Uh, the, the gospel never made it past the Cascades. God, it just somehow those mountains were too tall for missionaries. <laughs> but that, it just frankly hasn't been my experience. Um, and I just want to share a little bit about, the, uh, about that. Uh, who knows some of the Portland names, right? We've got the, the what, Rip City. Okay, that's off the basketball team. Um, but City of Roses, where do you think that comes from? Really, it goes back as far, according to the Portland City Archives, 1888. It was dubbed the City of Roses by a group of church pastors. There was a, they were actually having a, a convention of churches, part of the, uh, it was the Episcopal Church in 1888. And when they met here in the city to visit one of their churches, they remarked that this was just the City of Roses. And the name has stuck. So as far back as 1888, one of the monikers for Portland was given by Christian pastors. Well, you say, uh, you know, I've been to downtown Dustin. I have seen, like, the boarded-up windows with the plywood. Down in the south, we do that for hurricanes. Here in Portland, we do it for rioters. Um, but, uh, you know, what's really fascinating is that the first recorded protest in Portland's history was in 1874, led by a group of Christian women. I have a picture here of the women's temperance movement, and it actually is that in 1874, uh, Chief James Lapius arrested 15 members of the Women's Temperance and Prayer League, right, for picketing downtown saloons. The women were charged with, quote, disorderly prayer. And I know there's some of you in here that would get that charge too. I've seen some disorderly praying. The women appeared in court the following day. They were found guilty by an all-male uh, jury and sentenced to one dastardly day in jail. Which probably wasn't enough to stop it, honestly. It, you know, you see, you find Portland's had the same uh, catch-and-release program for 200 years now, so <laughs> I don't think we could say it's political. You see, Portland has these deep Christian roots. I, I just love to talk to people in the city and let them know. I said, you know, the first people who protested in the city were Christian women. We started it. You're just copying us. I like to tell them the name City of Roses comes from the name the church gave the city. Oh, man, it has such deep Christian roots. There's so many Christians in the city, but they used to go to church. They used to be part of the faith. It doesn't seem like it's pre-Christian at all. It seems like, like something's happened in our city's history that has just made the city forget. Or maybe it's something they want to forget. 
Maybe it's something they haven't forgotten at all. And so this is coming to this question of from where does healing really come? And so with that, we go to burning serpents in the wilderness. So if you have a Bible or if you want to follow on the screen as we look to Scripture in Numbers 21, we join the freed Hebrew slaves from Egypt. Uh, They've just experienced victory from a warring nation. And here in verse 4, we join them. It says in verse 4, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people are traveling along the very sea from which they saw God miraculously rescue them. And it's here that they're struck. It's, it's as it, we all are, as our life goes on, we forget what miracles the Lord does. We forget how God moves mightily and powerfully in our lives. And we're standing next to the very, like the very body of water that, that delivered us and crushed our oppressors. And we're impatiently waiting on God to just do something else. In verse 5, it says, The people spoke against God and Moses. And this is what they said. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. Well, we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent these fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, well, we've sinned. We've actually sinned, Moses, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. This is a very interesting place in Scripture because in one short frame, we see the safety of God's protection and his favor, and we see the danger of the wild world. In this one complex part of Scripture, we're left with odd questions like, you know, from where do these snakes come? Are they like snakes sent by God? And what is it that um, the people have really done? What exactly is their sin? Is their sin uh, trenched in doubt because they're doubting their leaders? Is the sin drenched in like doubting the Lord and that God cares for them? There's some sort of deep-seated truth here with our serpents that has us asking questions And here in this little frame, we're reminded that all good and perfect things come from God. But he doesn't have to give them. And we're reminded that there is often danger in our world. There's often consequences to our actions. And so the burning serpents or the viper snakes... Uh, fiery is how my translation puts it. It's, uh, the idea is they have, they're venomous. Um, and they start striking the people, and it says that many people died. And they cry out in their anguish for the Lord to save them. This is part of the cyclical pattern when you read the Old Testament of the people of Israel. They're faithful, and when everything's good, they become faithless. And then everything goes bad, and they cry out for God. And God saves them, and they become faithful, and everything's good for a long time, and they become uh, displeased, impatient, and it's just this cycle over and over and over again. 
It says in verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, You know, Moses, make this fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Just like you and I would do. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, that person would look at the bronze serpent and live. This brings up all sorts of questions. Like, it's a very complicated image. You know, if you just turned a few pages back in the Bible from Numbers 21, you're like, wait, are, are we supposed to be making, like, statues of uh, kind of beings that have magical powers? That doesn't sound right. You know, and where does healing really come? God's going to make a bronze, he's going to have us make a bronze serpent that heals us? I think that might be what you might read the first time. And why a snake, right? Why a snake? Uh, you know, I was reading uh, this essay because that's, I guess, what pastors do. We read essays on, like, old dead things. I was reading an essay on middle, um, the Middle East uh, snake cults and how it intersects with our Bibles. And uh, this is what Maciej Munich, a professor of these things, says. He says, when we look to the answer of the bronze serpent... We have to notice that throughout the entire Near Middle East, the snake is considered a symbol of health and immortality. Um, and it's usually connected with its shedding skin. There's lots of stories in the ancient Middle East about snakes representing eternal life. Blue Cross Blue Shield uses this same symbol, as does many different healthcare providers across uh, the nation. They use the snake wrapped on the pole from this here text. Right? So actually, the way we see the snake in the pole is very similar to how the ancient people see the snake. It's an object of healing. Uh, but, you know, for a Christian, anytime we start talking about serpents and snakes, we actually have another image come to our minds, right? We know that that particular lizard, he's a liar. And so it even complicates the image even more. It's like, wait, isn't the serpent the thing in the garden that tricks the man and the woman? And now God's asking us to build something that kind of looks like that. And if we look at it, we would be healed in some way. I mean, man, it's just really complex. So back to their story, right? So back to the burning serpents. So the Israelites, they sin. They don't trust God, and they don't trust God's leaders, and so God removes his protection, and then the snake comes and starts biting them, and they take on venom, and they start dying, and the thing that heals them is to trust God again. God has them erect a statue that has no magical power. But he says, if you do this and look at it, if you obey me, you will be healed. Because I was thinking about this, I mean, if I'm dying of viper venom on the street, and you said, Dustin, God said if you look at this little statue over here, you'll be healed. I would have to trust that statement. I'd have to believe what you said is true. I believe that here in the text, it's obedience to God that puts the people back on the right track. 
And, and to look at the serpent on the pole is particularly difficult because you have to acknowledge the thing that ails you, the thing that's oppressing you. You have to realize that, oh, this is because of my sin. The snake on the pole is like some sort of mirror about my own disobedience to God. When I see it, I'm reminded that the, this, is from, this is from God because I didn't trust him and I'm being oppressed by these snakes because I am the problem. It's just like in our lives that when we come face to face with Jesus, we have to deal with our own stuff. It isn't the statue that saves them, it's this obedience and trust in the Lord, because our God has been doing the same things always. And every time we find a strange part in the Bible, we always go, well, what about this? But our God has better things for us. Our God wants us to trust him, and sometimes it doesn't look normal. But that leads us to the next place on our roadmap, and that's misplaced hope. Because you see, this isn't the end of the bronze snake. It wasn't built, and then they just left it buried in the sand. They actually carried this thing through the whole wilderness. They carried it and brought it around, and it survived kings and wars for hundreds of years. And we don't hear about it again until um, a descendant of King David, King Hezekiah, it's David's 14th great-grandson. And here in 2 Kings 18, 1 through 5, we see what he does with it. So it says in 18, 1, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. But listen to this. It says that, well, the good things he did are these. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. But think at this. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehshtan says Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. You see, the Hebrews did exactly what you and I do. They placed all of their hope in something that wasn't God. It was confused. I mean, we don't put our hope into statues. Modern people don't do that. We misplace our hope in people, in ministries, in pastors. We look at the thing that brought us closer to Jesus. We look at the thing or the person that brought us into healing, and we disconnect that from God. I, I think this is kind of an epidemic in our lives. We look at our leaders who've written books and preached great sermons, and when we find them out to be imperfect, when they fail, it destroys our faith. This happens regularly in America. We confuse the healing vehicle of God with our very faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, 
when we look at our teachers, our teachers are imperfect. I'm imperfect. Pastor Mark's imperfect. Connor's pretty good, though. And we're, we're just trying to follow Jesus with our own junk. And there's so many churches in America that build cults of personality around their leader. And you fall into one of two camps. Either when they fail or they sin and it's clear as day, you deny it and you say everyone's out to get them. Or it shatters and breaks your faith and you say the church has been a place full of hypocrites. This is an absolute epidemic in like Western Christianity. You see, what's happened is, is throughout our nation's history, um, God gave us a bronze snake in the wilderness to provide us healing. And we started worshiping the snake. We started trusting people and not our obedience to God. Uh, you know, when we read the Great Commission, when Jesus gets out in front of the disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says, go therefore into all the nations um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then he says this, teaching them, not all that I commanded, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And sometimes as pastors and leaders, we miss that. We get up here and we share information, but my job isn't to tell you more things about the Bible. My job is to help you obey Jesus Christ more. And that's what's going on in the snake in the wilderness. It's like if this obedience, if you just trust me, if you look at the snake, you'll find healing. But if we miss that, if we miss the obedience, then we, then we get confused. Well, it was the snake that healed me. It must be magical. Well, that pastor preached such a great sermon. Well, he's such a good author. You see, Portland, Oregon has a bronze snake epidemic. It's just a result of misplaced hope over a hundred years in the making. So what's really hard about planting a church in Portland, Oregon is we have to just do a lot of it's not this, it's not that, it's not this. Our faith isn't the bronze snurpit in the wilderness. It's obedience to Jesus Christ. No, that's just what the media says. You don't understand our faith. No, that was your experience. I'm sorry your church pastor hurt you. No, that, that, they, were, they were faithful people. They just failed you. This isn't Jesus Christ. They're just people trying to be like him. And we do this with people and we do it with ministries. There's a ministry that brought you close to faith in Jesus, and we lift those up sometimes. And people who come in to the church through a ministry love that ministry. And I've seen it. I've served in that church where it's been 50 years and the quilting ministry is still going strong. And it's really not. But at a time, that ministry brought in people to the Lord. But something shifted. They, the church, we, sometimes we build systems to help serve people. But then we get out of the wilderness, or we get healed from our viper venom, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves serving that system. I, I, I've been there. I mean, one of the things in our church in Houston we planted is like you never had enough children's ministry volunteers. And so it's like, man, 
I want to serve the children. I want to serve them. And it's like, but, but, you know, you get to this place where we ought to have this many people and this many people. And you feel like you're slave to the system. And the system's good and it provides life. But we see as churches go on, um, sometimes the snake needs to be destroyed. Every church has a sacred cow or a bronze serpent. Every uh, ministry has something that worked like just in this amazing way where God's move was huge and strong and wide-sweeping. But then we confused the leaders or um, the ministry as the thing that did it. Pastor Mark just talking about Nicaragua. God's sweeping movement. It can't be manufactured. It can't be created. It's people's hearts coming to Jesus. It's a work of the Spirit of God in your life. You know? So that leads us then, finally, to late night musings with Jesus. So we find in the third chapter of John... Jesus having a late-night conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And they're discussing really heavy and difficult Christian concepts, such as love and forgiveness and grace, things that are easily said and much harder done. And at a point in the conversation, it shifts. And in verse 13 through 15, Jesus says this. He says, No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus reclaims the image of the serpent on the pole. It was this good thing. It became this bad thing. And then Jesus did it again. Your sin, your pain, he says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, put it on a pole, and stuck it in the ground, so too will they do to me. And anyone who obeys the Lord and looks to me will be healed. I mean, that's our gospel promise. Our culture wrongly believes that the gospel rests in the hope of people. They look at our church institution, and they expect you to be perfect. You know you. You're not that. I know me. I'm not that. But they're looking to us, not in obedience to Jesus Christ. They're looking to the serpent, not in obedience for healing. They're looking to us to judge us. And the religious person gets the gospel wrong, too. When he looks at the bronze snake, he doesn't see a mirror in his own sin. The the person who's religious often sees the sin of others. Authoritarian moralism, it often just leads to judgmental, Jesus-less Christianity. Why? Morals are good. Doing good is good things. Being holy is great, but it's confusing the serpent for the healer. It's confusing that move of God and that ministry with the one who saves us, Jesus Christ. Just like the Hebrews had to stare at that bronze snake, 
while the viper venom coursed through their veins. You and I have to stare at Jesus Christ and deal with the sin that he took on from us. You see, repentance is not a Christian punishment. Repentance is healing. It's supernatural. Sometimes we look at change and transformation, repentance, as like, man, I've got to change. I can't do this anymore. It's like, no, no, no. You get to change. You get to be like Jesus. It's granted from God's Holy Spirit that you're being transformed and made in his likeness. Repentance isn't the punishment that all Christians have to live through. It's the thing you get to be. And so when we trust in Jesus, as we look to him, like all of our infirmities and sin are forgiven and we're healed, we become like new people. And this is where from where which healing comes from the person of Jesus Christ, from our transformation and following him and being like him. It is repentance. The group of the group of Christians following Jesus are a repentant people. We're a people walking and following Jesus, choosing to be different. And, and if you asked anybody out in Portland, does this world need to change? They will all say yes. Now, they might have different reasons why. But repentance is really us saying something's got to change. And as Jesus teaches us, it's me. I'm the one who has to change. And so, what do you do? Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us, you know what, if you would just seek first the kingdom of God, if you just sought that thing first, all your other needs and worries, they'd be taken care of. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by such a great group of people who've gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus. Hard stop. Jesus, who's Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured that cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So where does healing come from? It doesn't come from statues, nor men, nor ministries, but only faith in Jesus Christ. Only when we stare deeply at the person of Jesus do we see ourselves. Do we realize that the snake on Jesus' cross is what I have done. It is the serpents that ail me, the serpents I brought upon myself. I need to change. I need healing. But that's going to mean I have to trust that Jesus is good. And I have to obey what he's asked me to do. My family's mission on behalf of Go Church Ridgefield is um, Hezekian in nature. What we have to do in Portland is destroy a lot of bronze serpents. Countless 
person. I meet Christians all over the place. Everyone asks you, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a church pastor, and I'm planting a church here. And they'll tell you, oh, I used to go to church. And then, but this happened. This happened. I've heard lots of different stories of people who've left church for lots of different reasons. And I can tell you, the biggest problem with it is that they left because of people. It's really hard for the faithful, and I've met those too, because they have uh, kind of the snake around the pole for healing, and they know that what happened in their life was supernatural and miraculous and that God is real. But there's such abuse that's been tied into it by whomever in the name of Jesus that they can't separate the two and they're working it out and you'll find a lot of Christians in Portland working it out trying to figure out you know how much of that was sin in this world and how much of it um, was me and like where is God in that I think the question Portland is asking isn't does God exist it's is he good does he do good things? Because they all have these Red Sea shifting moments in their lives where God moved miraculously, but then they confused their faith and their belief with a man or a ministry who let them down. And so, if you would join our family, as Pastor Mark said, by praying for us, we have a lot of, like, reforming to do, a lot of iconoclastic work, destroying um, these images and these moments in people's lives where um, they confuse the, the healer for his mechanism for healing. They thought that their pastor was perfect or um, they were really let down by a local church or, and you all have too, right? But we know, we know it's Jesus. It always has been. And that repentance is what we're doing together. We're choosing to change together. We're choosing to walk this journey together and become something new, something better. And so, you know, I want to give you an opportunity. I'm asking you to pray for our family, but I want to pray for you. I have church, deep church hurt in my life. And I sense that there might be some of you here that do too. It happens. And you don't realize how much it's sunk in sometimes. Maybe it results in resentment. Maybe when we talk about a certain ministry or a certain church or a certain church leader, you're riled up and you get this emotional flood. Maybe you're visiting for the first time and you've had only that experience. And what brought you in today was you just felt like something different. Something needed to change. And so I would ask you as I pray, uh, if you have church hurt, would you trust God? Would you with me lift your hand if you have church hurt as we pray and just 
Trust that the Lord can heal you from that. I will be raising my hand as I pray this uh, because you are looking at someone who, who still struggles sometimes. But alas, I am me. So join me in prayer and in obedience. Would you trust the Lord for healing? King Jesus, I love you, and I confess that I don't always love your people, though I am one of you people. I struggle, and I fight, and so many Christian leaders have let me down. So many men and women who I misplaced my hope into have let me down, and Lord, I... I, I must confess, I admit that I got it confused. Would you just grant me real healing? Would you grant the people of Portland healing? Would you vanquish our resentment and fill us with joy? Would you make us a people of peace and love that can forgive those who hurt us? Would you give us new life? Would you help us fix our eyes on you, Jesus? You are good. Give me eyes to see it. Father God, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.